0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Guerrilla Filmmakers Lounge. I am Clint, and I am here with my loyal co-host, Nick.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. And today we're joined by two very special guests, uh, Director Barry Anderson and Mitch Onger uh, Mitch of Planet5D.com, and they're here to talk to us about a really cool project that they just wrapped up, uh, one of the first films shot on the Canon uh, 5D Mark III, uh, great film called The Incident on Marmont Avenue. And if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go check it out. We'll give you the address uh, over the course of the show. So hi, guys. Hey, hi, guys. guys. You sound so thrilled to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just waking up, right? And get some more coffee.
2: It's hot here in St. Louis.
1: Oh, it's got to be in and and Barry, you're in uh Minnesota. Minnesota. And I actually one of the states I've never been to, Minnesota, and I've always wanted to go there. So, are you like in the uh, what what area are you in?
3: I'm just west of the uh the Twin Cities. Okay. Cool. I, I like to say I I I I um Whatchamacallit, call it? Keep uh, the farmland from invading the city. So one one direction you go, it's farmland. The other direction, it's city. So you're, you're I'm, the... I'm the last. I'm the last best hope for either one of them. <laughs> nice.
1: That's awesome. We're all doomed. <laughs> We're all doomed. Just, just kidding.
3: So uh, why don't you guys uh, talk about where did the idea
1: for this project come from? And uh, whoever wants to feel that one can can start with it.
2: I'll I'll jump in on that one, and we'll let Barry fill in the details. And and I could take up the whole podcast probably just by talking about that. But it it started when we very first went to see the Canon 5D Mark III the week before it was announced. And we were looking for something to do. We knew that uh, through the rumor mill that some of the big guys weren't going to be making a 5D Mark III movie. So we decided we were going to be the first ones out of the box. And uh, we tossed some ideas around. Barry and his wife wrote the script, which is based on a true story that came from uh, uh, one of our editors, Chris Fenwick. And, uh, and so we decided to run with it. And it was, it was a crazy fast schedule that killed us.
0: What was the schedule? How long did it take <laughs> from the time you conceptualized the, the film to wrapping the edit and calling it done
2: well so the 5d mark 3 was announced on march 2nd so it was the week before that so late february was when we first uh came up with the idea barry and his wife started working on the script and and putting the project together right away while i was working on creating blog posts to to announce the 5d mark 3 uh but we all we our original goal was to have it done at least a week before NAB, which was April 14th. So our schedule was basically about six weeks from the announcement of the 5D Mark III to NAB was our, our theoretical drop-dead date. So we had to get it done in less time than that.
1: And Barry, was, what was your thought on that timeline as a director?
3: I didn't have a problem with the timeline. Um, because we were moving pretty good the the biggest problem or the you know the biggest hurdle that i was worried about is post um you know making sure that we get you know we had a couple key things a we didn't know when we were getting a camera when we started which uh, right. makes it hard to schedule actors and <laughs> locations and everything else so that was a little bit tricky um and then uh you know making sure that we had everything lined up for post because the problem is a lot my, my you know chris who edited edited the piece. Um, I work with him all the time. And he had a huge project kind of right in that time frame that we were going to be needing to do post that he couldn't switch around. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we weren't sure if we're going to run up against that. And then I had a really good deal with uh, a friend of mine that works at one of the big post houses um, to do some color correction for me. And basically at the end of March, the first part of April, is when it switches to um, pilot season in L.A. Ah. And basically every post house goes from being, yeah, sure, we got time, to literally having almost 24-hour round the clock. You know, people are just busy. So we were running into some, you know, I guess extraneous problems that I was trying to deal with that, you know, made it a little bit more nerve wracking. So we worked with a few people that I haven't worked with before, um, and whatnot, but it all it all came together great. But that was, you know, if I had to isolate the biggest problem i was worried about post because we knew right away that uh we didn't have a a hard date to to deliver anything because we didn't know when the camera was coming and uh, some of our regular people couldn't work for the entire project or at all so we were finding new ones
0: not to uh uh, put the cart before the horse but just since we're on the topic of post-production just out of curiosity um what
3: did you edit this on was this premiere was this final cut or avid or we did the Final Cut Seven, and the reason that we did that, we were debating between uh, Premiere Pro and Final Cut, but because we were going to be using multiple editors, um, you know, and everybody, you know, every editor I know has Final Cut, and not everybody has Premiere. Right. So we we decided to standardize our workflow, so no matter what kind of which area we went to, if it was a freelancer, if it was a post house, we knew mm-hmm. that we wouldn't be kind of re, restarting the horse. We we went with Final Cut Seven just for that purpose.
1: Okay, gotcha. All right. Um, so back to scheduling, and it's funny you say that for, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in because we have a lot of filmmakers in our audience, both experienced and amateur. And it's interesting to me, the one thing that I think people tend to most forget when they embark upon any sort of production is just practical time. People tend to think like time in a vacuum, and it's interesting that as a. <laughs> As a director, you were already thinking, okay, is my crew going to be available when I need them, you know, six weeks ahead? Whereas a lot of people are thinking two days ahead, you know, and that's – where does it – is that just from experience, Barry, or is that
3: Um, – Well, some might say experience, some might say paranoid. Um, You know, we've had problems in the past where, you know, you get someone lined up and then, you know – It's especially on smaller projects, you know, when you're doing a short film or you're doing a, a, you know, kind of a a passion project where you're maybe not paying full day rates, you know, everybody has this. You know, you have a key crew member, they're totally on board, you worked with them before, and then, you know, the day before the production, you know, they're like, hey, I just got to call on a feature, you know, two and a half months and we're going to Canada. And you're like,
1: Huh. You, you can't really tell them no. <laughs>
3: yeah, like, I'm gonna pay like 150, dollars so you should probably turn down that $10,000 job to come work with me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's just little things that over time. So I guess, I guess, yeah, you could you could chalk it up to experience, but also, you know, this was, you know, a lot of times you're doing again an independent project where there's no studio, there's no, you know, there's no delivery date. You know, you're just gonna finish your piece and then you're gonna. You know, create your film film festival plan or whatever. Well, this was kind of like having a TV show. You know, well, we have a date we have to release on, and no matter how hard we have to work between now and then, it's got to be done. So it was a different for me. You know, having that sort of you know compressed time schedule. You know, I guess that's that's probably more where my brain was at.
1: And uh, let's uh, talk about production for a little bit. First of all, it again, it looks it's an amazing looking film. Congratulations to both of you. It, It came out phenomenally. Um, the thing that obviously jumps out at me when I see it is the cast, um, you know, great talented actors and recognizable actors. I mean, uh, anybody that's a fan of lost is going to recognize, uh, Ethan. William Ethan. Yeah. He's such that's a scumbag, he, he plays <laughs> such a great, creepy guy. And he's uh, so funny in real life too. Is he really? That's yeah. that's awesome. I, how did um, how did the casting process go down, especially on a compressed schedule? I, I in my experience, usually it's hard to get. You know, we always call it the work triangle. You know, cheap, fast, good, pick two, and yep. so, so to get um, talented actors in a tight schedule usually ends up costing a lot of money. So I don't imagine you guys had $50 million for this production. So how'd you, uh, how'd you pull it together? How'd you, how'd you make it all work?
3: Well, we, um, I knew that we wanted to try to get some, you know, get some, some recognizable talent, some really good, you know, actors for the piece. Um, and so what we did is I, I've been going to Sundance the last few years, helping a friend of mine. Uh, he's got a big social media kind of influencer party that he runs. Um, I actually run for him, and I met uh, Heidi Levitt back in 2011, I think. And I didn't really know who she was. She was she was there just kind of advertising. She has a um, an, an app for actors to kind of you know. I'm not exactly sure. All the things it does, but it's kind of like a community for actors to help them better connect with each other and cool. g- get more opportunities. And so we just hit it off. We we're just kind of chatting and whatnot, and you know we took each other's you know contact details we're like hey whatever, and then uh, we we're we were going going to do do this movie. I'm like oh I'll, I'll contact Heidi and everyone's like you can't you can't call Heidi. I go like, why not? And they're like you don't you know who she is? I'm like yeah it's the girl that you know, we were sitting there chatting. And they're like no no she cast the artist and uh-huh. she's like red hot right now in hollywood and i'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) like all right so she's like one of the most in demand so i called her up and like uh, why don't i just play dumb and call her anyway (laughs) i I called her and i'm like and she's like who are you again i'm like yeah remember we were sitting there she's like oh yeah i do and uh so she said well we're we're swamped and uh but she said send over your script and uh we sent it over and she's like you know what, we like it she's like i'll do this with one of my junior agents and uh we'll fit it into the schedule and so she was a joy to work with her and, uh, David Lowe, who was, uh, um, uh, part of her staff. Um, they just, they just liked the project and they kind of seemed to get what we were going for. We kind of made lists of the different people we wanted and they gave us lists of people that they'd worked with like, uh, Adria, uh, Tenor who played the mom. Uh, she, she played John Goodman's, uh, assistant in the artist okay. and, yeah. uh, you know, they said, would you like to work with her? I'm like, absolutely. And she turned out to just be like, you know, I mean, just a phenomenal. I mean, we were just working with phenomenal actors. I mean, it was it was a pure joy. I mean, the, the biggest problem I had on the set is it, with all productions, you don't have enough time. So right. when working with the actors, you know, you get these unbelievable actors and it's kind of like, you know, in my in my experience, you know, when you're working independent film, this is how it goes. You know, you spend all your time getting all the technical stuff right. You roll camera. And if the actor doesn't screw up, and the camera doesn't screw up, you're done. You don't really care as much about the, you know, I mean, you do care about the performance, but there's a point where you don't get a chance to be like, you know what, let's see if we can really tweak this performance just because you're lacking time. And we, we built in more time for this to have, <clears throat> uh, have the ability to work with the actors, but working with that caliber of actor, uh, I could have had two more days um, and just literally lost myself in being able to work with them because they were, they were truly to work
2: with. But we shot the whole thing in two days. Let's not forget that as well. Ah, so it's a forty-eight-hour
1: film. Something we, yeah.
2: <laughs> something
0: we love. Well, and let, yeah. let's talk about that for a second because I'm interested, really, in workflow, especially um, uh, Mark III workflow. Um, how challenging was it to uh, light this? And and I'm I, as you know, we're watching it actually right now while we talk. I've got it on the iPad, and I'm just looking at how beautiful it is. Um, what kind of Gear did you bring to the shoot? What was your your lighting situation like and what kind of challenges did you run into and did you find some things were easier, some things were harder? What
3: what was that like? Um, I could talk about let's do this. I, what we, one of my goals on this piece was you know, we, we were having things that not every filmmaker gets. I mean we were working with a pretty unbelievable that you know not everybody gets to to have money and the access to that. But we wanted to make this the sort of thing that a lot of filmmakers could wrap their head around. So we weren't using you know Hollywood gear. We weren't bringing in techno cranes, we weren't doing stuff. So we mostly shot it on tripods, a slider. And uh, my my personal cam unit that I had a friend of mine operate for me. And that was pretty much our rigging. So we just Which literally is, had...
0: Sorry to cut you off, but th- what that says to me, that is just hilarious because the sheer volume of money and manpower that goes into the average television show is just astounding by the standards of most small, low-budget filmmakers. And what you guys put together could be on network television tomorrow and you wouldn't even know the difference. Like it would just, I mean, so, so congratulations for pulling off such an amazing
3: looking piece with truly like gorilla gear. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And I, I will give massive credit to the, uh, the crew because we worked some, we worked long hours that were just working hard, but you know, I think everybody was really excited to do it, but going, going back to the gear, you know, we didn't want to have a ton of stuff that people didn't, you know, didn't really have access to or, or whatnot. So what we did, like I said, so we had, we had the 5D Mark Three, We had two bodies. Um, Zeiss, uh, let me turn off the phone here quick.
1: That's no problem.
3: It's the director's union going, hey, you yeah, want sorry, to talk sorry about, about that. that. <laughs> <My> <laughs> falling. Uh, we, uh, so we we had the two five D Mark III bodies. Uh, Zeiss was one of our sponsors, and they sent us a, a set of their uh, CP two cinema lenses, which were an unbelievable joy to work with. I hadn't been able to work with them um, with that, you know, on that scale. Um, you know, I played with them and been able to shoot with them, but not having a whole set and being kind of craft craft a look with them, and they were they were wonderful. Now, now so that the, was our
0: the cinema lenses. Did that require an adapter, or did they were they Canon mounts that
3: just Nope. They're Eos, they're EOS. Well, the great thing about the CP2 lenses, <clears throat> which I didn't know prior to getting on the set, that the CP2 lens is actually built so you can change the mount. Like if you bought or rented them, you can change mm. them to EL or EOS. So they fit on any camera without oh. having to get a different Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I, I, I didn't either. So, I, you know, I'm like, oh, well, we need the EOS ones, right? Like, well, we'll have the EOS mount down there. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, you can make it any mount you want. I'm like, well, that's a handy thing. Yeah, buy <laughs> one lens and use it no matter what camera comes out. So, I, I thought that was great. So that was our most expensive, you know, piece of gear. Why doesn't there. everyone do it that way? My goodness. <laughs> I, I well, then, then it wouldn't be proprietary, and they couldn't you know, tell know. us. I know. Uh, those, I know. those cheeky, cheeky bastards. So, um, it, uh, let me throw it over to Mitch for
1: just a second. Mitch, I just want to, and your role as producer and, and production and going back to that cheap, fast, good, you know, what was it like for you in terms of realizing that you're going to be in a compressed time frame and your role as a producer, obviously you're trying to mind a budget and try to keep things within a certain reason. Um, how, you know, what was your experience like and, and and where did you decide that it was appropriate to... You know what? What decisions for you were, what decisions for you were like? Okay, this is a decision worth my budget can go out the window, or this is a decision where you know what we need to really stick to this. And how do you just how do you make those decisions as a as a producer?
2: Well, it was my first production uh, assignment, so I had a lot of learning to do not to mention the fact that I wanted to watch Barry and Julian Lassure who was the director of photography and the whole crew and to learn exactly how the whole process worked. So I wanted, you know, wanted to go from start to finish. Most of what we did, um, as, as a learning process is, you know, with your little triangle, uh, the schedule was paramount. And so, if we if we'd had a lot more time we would have maybe considered squeezing the budget a little harder. Uh you know, not done certain things, but we had to get it done. And so that was that was really sort of the hardest thing for me was was trying to wrangle spending money versus well, if we don't do that, we're not gonna be our schedule.
1: And and let me ask you this, this is just the larger question, because as as I imagine all smaller productions are, and I know, uh, Barry, I know you were a producer on this as well as director, so that you guys can probably both speak to this. I'm sure, and we don't have to get into actual numbers here, as with any passion project, you guys probably had to go out of pocket on quite a bit of this to, to get it done. So let me ask you this. Why do you do it? <laughs> I know that's a big question, but, but why? You know, what's, what's the reasoning to do all this?
3: Um, well, it, I, I can uh, – you go, Mitch, and then I'll I'll wrap up that question.
2: In my case, um, you know, I, Planet 5D is my job, my day job, my evening job, my weekend job. And so what I wanted to do was to be able to promote Planet 5D as a DSLR filmmaker's resource. And so I, my expectation was to say, look, you know, I co-produced this. Um, here's, here's what we can do with a DSLR. It looks amazing. We've got a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff that we're still trying to crank out to, to get some, some readers to come to the blog. So my, my whole motivation was Planet 5D.
3: Okay. That makes sense. And what about you, Barry? Oh, you already know the answer. I'm a filmmaker, and we don't have a brain. So <laughs> I know. Like I just dark.
1: want to hear you say it. It's i Right there
3: with you. It's, it's, yeah, it's like I. W- I wish I would have been addicted to heroin as a child because it would have been a lot cheaper than being a filmmaker. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lifelong bug, and you know, like for instance, even people like uh, Chris Finnick, our editor, they have a post production facility up in uh, the Bay Area, and they work on. You know, they're busy all the time, just flat out. They're super talented guys that work up there, and they work a ton on corporate stuff, and they're just you know, they're doing quite well for themselves. But you know there is a certain thing that when you 're doing corporate videos or doing some of these things that you don't get to unleash that that creative bug, and right. so you know you can find those people and you know you know Chris and Paul who owns the place there you know I think they kind of even though that i'm probably by far and away the worst paying client they have <laughs> they they tend to like me because it's you know once or twice a year you can kind of come up and put in a few extra hours, maybe work a weekend you know for cheap or free. And you get to you get to have that creative outlet on something that just accesses a different side of your brain than doing some of the you know you get a, a lot of the work that people do on a day to day basis to pay their bills.
1: You get a piece of art at the end of it. I mean, that's, absolutely, that's the thing is your name is on a piece of art, and I I think that's really you know and I and I knew that's I knew that's what you were going to say, but it's true. <laughs> I think we we all do this, and we all participate in filmmaking as a medium. Because we want to see that piece of art at the end, and when you see all those names and those credits go by, and I don't care if it's a short film or a feature film, you know every single one of those names that's why they do it you know is, mm-hmm. is, is for that piece of art at the end, and granted there's you know like you said, I mean there's the stuff you do to pay your bills and taking nothing away from commercial or industrial oh, yeah. production or anything like that, not at all um, but you know, to, to sit down and get to work with high caliber talent on on something that you guys crafted yourself. That's gotta be the best feeling when you see it get out in front of an audience.
3: Yeah, I can't I, I have no complaints. You know, it's one of those things where I didn't know, you know, on the compressed time schedule and when you put it out there. I mean the DSLR revolution, you know, isn't new. So, you know, are people jaded? You know, we didn't well the nice part is this is actually a good story. The you know, both with Julian, uh the DP and uh Uh, Paul and Chris up at Slice Editorial, you know, it was funny because here we are working with a brand new camera. You know, we get it right off the truck. You know, we have a day or two some general test. But what's funny is we never once talked about the camera or issues or anything. We just made a movie. And then we're sitting in the editing and we're just arguing over edits and story and structure and all that. And we kind of lock it off. And then as we're doing our final render, we're like, we never once talked about the image quality. We never once said, oh, that's this. You know, it's now, you know, it's crossed into, of course, this tool works.
0: Yeah. Cause and so it's nice Because it's a nice Canon. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Nikon <laughs> guys would be sitting there bitching about that equipment.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I can speak from experience when I, I decided – when I was writing uh, the DSLR Filmmaker's Handbook, I'm like, well, I shouldn't just be a Canon guy. I should really buy a Nikon camera so I could talk about them the same. So I ordered my D300S, got home, literally took four video clips and looked at them I'm like, this is so unusable. It's unbelievable. Packed it up, shipped it back, and been waiting for <laughs> for a model of Nikon I can buy that you know I could legitimately swap between Canon and Nikon. And uh, I still don't think it's there, but that's my opinion. I'm going so. to save that clip.
2: And, <laughs> and I had Nikon D4 here on loan for a weekend, and, and that dadgum thing is soft for a six thousand dollar camera. Huh. The the video is soft. Well, and that's what's we're we're in that. This is where the consumer
0: wins. I mean, they're, they're, let those two giants battle it out, and I'm sure eventually Nikon will uh, will come out with a game changer, and then the Canon guys will be jealous for a while, and, and you know we win, ultimately. The end. Yeah, I was going to say,
3: the more competitors we have as filmmakers, the better. Yeah, the, right. Absolutely the better. We do not want Canon to be the only uh, fish in the game, and I, I still think—I've been saying now for a couple of years that I I personally think that— it's less likely to be Canon versus Nikon, and more likely to be Panasonic, or, uh, Panasonic versus Canon, yeah. or possibly even someone like Sony that uh, has a has a huge infrastructure. Nikon, in reality, is a pretty small company, and mm-hmm. the engineering feats that go into these things, I'm not sure, you know. I'm not totally convinced they have the resources that some of these other mega companies have to do it. So I'll, I'll stick with, I think, uh, Panasonic will blow by Nikon at one point, but that's that's my opinion.
0: What's funny to me, and, and not to go down this rabbit hole much further, but just quickly, is how easy it was for them to actually revolutionize the entire industry once they decided to do it, and how it was yeah. kind of an accident. That sort of, it's almost like what, what what kind of annoys me about it is, because I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on cameras over the years and everybody always wanted interchangeable lenses on a simple camera body that could just do what the 5d does and they could have made it. They had all the every they had and it, uh, all the engineers and all of the the expertise was already there and it wasn't until they kind of accidentally stumbled into it and then it was like oh well the genie's out of the bottle,
2: <laughs> I <Yeah>. guess,
0: <laughs> I guess we all have to get on this bandwagon and start doing it and it's like you bastards. Well, and that's <laughs>
1: and you held out on us and you know what too, uh, Mitch going to what you're talking about about the uh, you know for a six thousand dollar camera being a little soft, I mean I think you're also. You know, there is a business side to this. You're starting oh, to yeah. see people test like, okay, well, what, what is going to be acceptable resolution? What's, you know, what can we still sell a billion $6,000 cameras for and get away with if we can, you know, if we can cut a corner here or there? Um you know, you hate to see it, but I, you know, there is that business side to it. And I think, you know, that's why you get a company like Apple that ever that's doing as well as they are, because they seem to be really committed to going the opposite direction. Like how good can we make it as opposed to, you know, how, how low can we sell it for? And then still the have maximum return it.
0: on investment. Yeah. Right. Um, just quickly, because we only have a few minutes left and then we have to wrap up, but I really wanted to touch on this because I think it's an important point. When, when people see uh, this film, one of the first things that you notice is that it really does look like a film. And since that's the thing everyone's always chasing is the film look, can you talk a little bit about the color correction process, the post-production process, and how you kind of achieved the, the buttery look that you got? Um, how much of that was dependent on on using the Zeiss glass, and and how much of that was in in post?
3: Oh man, that's a mathematical equation that I don't think any of us exactly know. I, I this is this is the pillars. This is what Julie and I talked about. Zeiss Zeiss lenses are are gorgeous lenses, but they do tend to run a little bit cool. Um, and what we wanted to do is kind of when you watch the piece, we won't try to throw any spoilers out there. We didn't want immediately like if you're just kind of watching it we didn't want it to feel like you know like some sort of horror movie out of the gate or something we kind of want to let people be like you know, where is this going to go? So we didn't want to give it too harsh of a look. So we just want to kind of be kind of normal right off the bat. And then as the piece kind of builds, um, mm-hmm. you know, you let your mind take you to places as opposed to us forcing the look on you. So I think the, you know, the, how, the, the location that we chose and then kind of how we chose to light it along with the Zeiss lenses gave us probably 70, 80% of the look. And then, you know, we went into post and they really were able to kind of, you know, even everything out and make it look great, but we weren't. It's not like we had a base and then we we're like, "Hey, let's do the bleach bypass look." And we were just stretching and pulling. It was more just kind of a nice finessing uh, color session as opposed to, you know, we're really going to push push the boundaries here.
1: And and off, you know what? Actually, if I can just jump oh, in sure. there, kudos to you um, for that because you just talked about your intent going into it and what you know what you wanted the the viewer to get out of it. And I think you. Nailed that. Like, as I watched it for the first time, I definitely got that there's an uneasiness feeling. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, you know, something's going to happen, but you keep watching it going. Man, where, where is this going? I, I can't, is this kind of, you know, you, you get that feeling, is this going to be a horror movie? Is it going to be like, where is it going? <laughs> and I think that's pretty cool. I think, I, I mean, you give that sense of uneasiness and it's interesting how you talk about how that was intended from the very beginning. And I think that's what a lot of people, especially beginning filmmakers lose sight of is intent from everything has to be purposed. You know, you do yeah. everything you do for a reason and you can't lose sight of that. It's huh. like it's like
0: you don't become a filmmaker for the money.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that happens later if you're good.
3: Yeah, exactly. Eventually, someone will realize, "Hey, I should pay you to do this for a living."
0: <laughs> um, quickly, uh, you mentioned that you had some behind-the-scenes stuff that you guys were working on. You'll eventually be putting that out there. Is that is that correct? Or <laughs> Yes. Yes. I, I, I know that everyone who's listening to this is going to want to dissect this film and figure out how you pulled it off because it is that awesome. So when uh, – do you kind of have an idea of maybe in the next couple of weeks or when, when can people start looking for that? Or, or where can they go, in other words, to find out more uh, about well, Incident on Marmon?
2: we did set up a link on Planet5D.com. If you just go to Planet5D.com slash Incident – that's the home page for everything about the movie. Uh, I am tweet uh, periodically putting out new posts about the behind-the-scenes stuff on the blog, but that one page has all of the links for for everything. Uh, I, I laugh about the behind-the-scenes stuff because it's it's sort of, I, I've gotten frustrated because there's so much other stuff that I have to do and that Barry has to do. Once we got back to the real world, it was like, we kind of got distracted mm-hmm. and you know, having to actually run the blog and make money and, and make all the other stuff happen. It can't just be a, a, an incident behind the scenes thing. I've got a whole bunch of other stuff to do. So that's what's sort of slowed us both down quite a bit.
1: It's, it's funny how the the actual film gets made in forty eight hours, but the, the behind the scenes stuff <laughs> takes forever to get out, and, right. and and that's pretty standard, you know. It's just well, one of those things.
2: You know, we we have a ton of material and just getting through all the material and deciding what works and what doesn't work, and some of this stuff has to be approved, like, with the actors in it. It has; They have to see it before it goes out, and, you know, all of the semantics mm-hmm. in the background just slows a lot of it down.
3: Okay. So, so people M- can... Mitch can say that it's a lack of time. I just decided that when DVDs came out, Hollywood enticed us to buy DVDs by giving us really spectacular behind-the-scenes videos. Mm-hmm. Then they decided, why are we doing these? We can sell the same DVDs and give you nothing, and we will gripe about it, but we'll live. So you know, we shot everything, and now we're just deciding to be like Hollywood. We just won't bother to show <laughs> anyone, and uh, and people will still watch it anyway. So.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. That's awesome. So, uh, so Barry, uh, what are you working on next? What projects do you have coming up?
3: Uh, well, as, as everybody, um, working on a couple different projects, I'm trying to put together uh, a feature here that we're shooting this fall. And then I'm actually doing a really weird project. I'm doing a stop motion animation, uh, a series of three short films with my daughter. Um, and we've been working on it now for, we've been, we got everything built and now we've just started doing all our tests and we're done with our tests and now we're actually moving into production. So I have a whole, a whole series on sheep and, uh. (laughs) I think it's going to be pretty pretty funny. That's now, awesome. And if people
0: want to see more of your work and learn more about uh what you do, uh where could they go to find out that information?
3: You uh I have a, a really horrible website for myself just berryanderson.com, just Anderson has two S's, and uh, as I finish projects I throw them up there. Um but there's not I need to actually put more up there, but I, you know, like everyone else I'm busy doing other things and I forget to promote myself.
0: It's busy making a living. Yeah, <laughs> And don't forget about Barry's
3: book. Yeah, you, go- you
1: mentioned that earlier. Where can we get that book?
3: Um, well, I don't know if there – are there any bookstores left? So I guess I just have to default to telling everyone they can go to Amazon.com. It's called the DSLR Filmmaker's Handbook, and it's basically you know a complete A to Z guide with using DSLR cameras. And we try to give uh, readers kind of, a, of any budget and or skill level kind of – you know, how little the baby step needs to be or if you want to be a little bit more advanced. But, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about my book, but if you go look at the reviews on Amazon, apparently we paid enough people to say nice things that it looks like it's a good book. So
0: there you well, have it, people. Those those are all paid. No, <laughs> yeah. no I, was, I, I, I was wondering I'll about I'll throw that.
2: in a plug because I've read just about every DSLR filmmaker's handbook kind of book on the market. And although I'm a, a friend of Barry's, I would tell you, even if i wasn't a friend that it's the best book on the market awesome,
0: awesome. Well, and so we will definitely link to all of those in the show notes so that everybody can go check those out and um uh, and, guys, we really appreciate you taking the time to be here today and, and talk to us a little bit about it. Can, uh, As we wrap up real quick, I, I know that we didn't even cover this part, but <laughs> you should probably tell people what this film's about
3: <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> should we go into that a little bit? Or See, that's, that's that's been our hardest question that we're asked because it's a short film, and it's kind of – it's almost a little bit – it's not really Twilight zone but it's like in any given kind of – when you have a – I guess I could say this. We, we we put a piece together that we were open to be ripped about because it's complex enough where we let the audience kind of, you know, there's two different ways you can read it kind of as you're going through the movie. So depending on the choice the viewer makes, they will experience the rest of the movie right. differently than someone who makes a choice to view it the other way so it's kind of this it's kind of a, for me it's kind of like a almost like a college experiment where you're you know here what do you think of this and you show another person knowing that they're they're likely to view it the other way and neither of them will will share the same viewing experience right so it's kind of a fun complex piece but when you make it that ambiguous then some people you know some people are bothered some people think it's genius you get a lot more kind of verbal response than just kind of a film that people like but i think so you know-
1: you know what I think at the end, though, that's better. You want response as opposed right. to just because if I respond to something, I'm ten times more likely to share it with somebody else. And I think that's what you guys, you know, and and we got to wrap it up. But I think you guys, you know, that's this is a video that I I hope that people go out there and watch, and I hope they share it with other people because it's really worth the time. And I think it does make you think, and it it's it's well done. So congratulations, to both of you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. All right, guys, have a great day, and we will talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. To
0: me, it doesn't make sense. And I don't like the silence.